All right. So today we have the privilege of hearing from our worship pastor. Um, there he is, Mike. Here we go. Sneak attack. All right. Welcome all. Wasn't it a nice morning so far of worship? Can we say thanks to our worship team? In fact, that was the first set uh, that I've been able to worship from the seats, as they say. So uh, an odd experience, but a really nice experience to be on that side of things. And I got to say, I can hear you all singing out so much better when I'm just a little bit closer to you. So kudos to you for your sound this morning and your involvement in worship. Thanks to the worship team. So I've, I've had a, an earworm this past week. If you're not familiar with that term, it's when a song latches onto your brain and it plays on a continuous loop for an obnoxious period of time. Anybody have those from time to time? And maybe you have one this morning. Maybe it's the last song we sang. But I realize that as soon as I tell you what this song is, I will have effectively passed this curse on to you. But it's a risk I'm willing to take. So here it goes. This song is Journey's don't stop believing you know this one you are singing it now in your head even as we speak and you're welcome so why this song beyond the obvious well I spent this past week thinking about how the church has handled the idea of belief when it comes to the life of faith the truth is that long before journey was belting out this hit song the Christian church had already been waging war against doubt and unbelief. Some of the narrative was taken from the Bible. Nobody hears a reference to Thomas, the disciple these days, without thinking. Doubting Thomas, right. You get a point. Poor guy, he did so much for the kingdom of God. Even at one point he was named Jesus' twin, yet he's marked for all eternity by this moment of doubt. The moniker, Doubting Thomas, is thrown around like a curse these days. But it wasn't just based on what the Bible said alone, this war. One pillar of Christianity, the infamous Charles Haddon Spurgeon, preached a sermon on January 14, 1855 in Southwark, London, entitled, The Sin of Unbelief. In his message that day, he said the following, Unbelief hath more phases than the moon and more colors than the chameleon. Common people say of the devil that he is seen sometimes in one shape and sometimes in another. I am sure this is true of Satan's firstborn child, unbelief. Yikes, That's some strong words, Spurgeon. And the church from its earliest days has not only been wrestling with what to believe, but how much belief is necessary to please God. When it comes to what the Bible says about belief, there's one line for me that kind of takes center stage. It's this prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You might be familiar with this prayer uttered by the father of a boy that was needing healing in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. This desperate dad explains to Jesus that his son had been deaf and mute since birth and was often seized by what he can only describe as a demon throwing him to the ground causing convulsions. And with a large crowd gathered around, he made his way to Jesus, begging for his son to be healed. 
Jesus' response was to make known that God's very essence is possibility. And he says, Lord, I believe, the man pleads, but help my unbelief. In this one short sentence, in this one brief prayer, we get a most powerful juxtaposition of faith and doubt, as we'll find in all the Bible. Today I want to talk about doubt and unbelief because it falls squarely within our current sermon series, if you've been around the past few weeks, of asking the tough and possible questions of faith. In fact, the way that I see it, it is the very invitation to ask the tough questions that point to how doubt can play an important role in the life of faith. Otherwise, we would have entitled this series, What to Believe in Order to Become a Member of This Church and to have an unwavering faith. Yet that's not what you'll get this morning. If I were to pose the theme of this message in the form of a question, it would be this. What is the purpose of belief for the life of faith? And what I'm really asking is whether the goal of faith is to ultimately get us to the point where doubt and questioning are no longer needed and eliminated altogether. You'll notice Bless you. <laughs> You'll notice this morning that this sermon includes a lot of questions. This was on purpose. This comes from a long-held conviction that I've had that the church should be known more for being a place that asks all the important questions over a place that we go to to get all the answers. I believe that. Yet this has not been the popular understanding of church. If you do just a quick search on church websites these days, it would seem to be the other way around. You get lists and lists of doctrines and creeds and statements of faith. All these long, long statements of belief expecting you to submit to them and not ask any questions, to hold tight to them and never and always to defend it at all costs. But watch out if those beliefs were ever put into question or if you express convictions that are counter to them you might find yourself shamed or ostracized from the community. I say that because I've seen that so many times in all my years of being around the church. And I have to try to explain on behalf of the church why that happens. And it's always hard to come up with the language. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. I'm convinced that somewhere along the way we've come to misunderstand the nature of faith and belief and in the process, we have demonized essential spiritual values like questioning and wondering and wrestling and even doubt. So maybe by way of uh, sharing a moment of solidarity, I'd be curious to ask you all this morning, if you feel comfortable by show of hands, how many of you would say that you hold the same beliefs today as you did when you were a much younger version of yourself? You hold the same belief today as you did when you were a much younger version of yourself. Thank you for your honesty. How many of you would say your beliefs have changed significantly over the years by show of hands? Thank you. And how many of you would say you're really not sure what to believe, but you're on the journey anyway? Anybody? Thank you for your honesty. Yeah, a, a pretty good mixture this morning. Beliefs can be a tricky thing 
And while I might share some suspicions about the idea of beliefs these days, I also have plenty to say about how forms of belief, such as strong convictions, are necessary and even healthy for us, suggested by the images on the screen. But given my limited time this morning, I do feel like I want to put my time into how beliefs can turn toxic I feel like that's the top topic of the day in the life of faith and how we can have a way forward. The, the idea of belief carries sermon, uh, certain sorry, weighty connotations in today's society that we cannot dismiss. It hints of confirmation bias and conclusion bias. You see, we work and we live and we interact with others in ways that seek to confirm our beliefs, always moving us away from things that would challenge these beliefs. And you could see how this preservationist tendency can make us closed off and maybe even give us some blinders. Yes, beliefs can help build community identity, but I find that many times it's at the expense of being divisive. At worst, history has shown how beliefs can lead to violence on a large scale, including wars and genocide. Eli Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor and author, once said this, we have learned from history that people are united by questions. It is the answers that divide them. And I think he was right. I can remember a specific time in seminary when my beliefs were challenged. At a Baptist institution in the center of, quote unquote, God's country, Texas, serving a Baptist church at the time as their pastor of worship, I was fully convinced that baptism had to be done by full immersion. That's the Baptist way. And if you're not too familiar with that language, this is when someone is dunked completely under the water to imitate Christ's own baptism. And this was held out only for those who had reached the age of accountability when they can confidently and coherently profess their faith in God. That was the formula, and it had to be done that way for their implications for eternal salvation, as I saw it, and even ways to be a part of church membership. But in my final year of my seminary degree, I took Dr. Brian Brewer's class on baptism. And in this class at this Baptist institution, I learned about many other traditions that use baptism, but did so in vastly different ways than my own. Some did it by sprinkling a handful of water over a person's head, and some baptized twice. Some did it at the front of the church, and some did it at the back of the room as people were leaving that day. One church I saw had a giant looping slide from the baptistry that kind of wound its way all the way to the front of the platform. They obviously wanted this act of obedience to be something that was fun and memorable for their members, seeing the whole thing as a great big celebration. Some baptize at the very beginning of life as a promise of future faith that one can grow into. And some acknowledge it even at the very end of life, making the statement that it really didn't matter when you were baptized so long as you follow Christ in obedience in this symbolic way. And the more that I learned about all these variations, the more it all began to sound beautiful to me. Communities were united by whatever form their church decided was meaningful to them. 
And that year, I noticed the less I became focused on advocating for my own belief about baptism, the more curious and energized I was to learn about other people and their communities that were unlike my own. And that continued over the years. The more I centered other stories and practices, the less likely I was to cling to my own beliefs, at least not in any essential way. Now, there are some beliefs that I do feel are non-negotiable, but this list is very short. And I would love to hear from you on what some are in your list. That's important as a community for us to share that together. I don't speak on behalf of everybody here. But these are some of mine. For me, love is the essential starting place, and it must guide everything we do in life. The pursuit of justice, equality, and the affirmation of all people is a belief that demands a lifetime of action. The conviction that there is a source, that there is an energy, a, a sacred force in this world that we have come to nickname God is an essential belief I have subscribed to and I've dedicated my life to pursuing. See, all of these are beliefs that can be transformative. They will in turn keep us curious and keep us open to those around us and everything else the way I see it can be held much more loosely. Let me say it this way, if your beliefs do not lead you to unconditionally love your neighbor and yourself, they, being your beliefs, are a toxic idol in your life. The, James, the book of James puts it succinctly. It says this, faith without works is dead. Your faith is lifeless, like dead weight, unless it is defined foremost by loving action. If your beliefs do not lead you into a life of serving others and keep you open to other people's stories that are unlike your own, you have fallen into what many have called the sin of certainty. This is where defending your belief system is more important than pursuing relationships within your community and all its variety and complexity and even imperfections. So what is biblical faith? I have found the words of Chaim Ventura, the teacher of Biblical Hebrew, to be helpful lately. He describes how one Aramaic word for faith or belief points to the image of a mother nursing her baby. He writes these beautiful words. Faith or belief in the Semitic mindset is a bonding, an expression of love, honor, and respect. We tell people in our Western culture that they must believe like it is a great effort. They must grit their teeth and clutch their fists like the child in Miracle on 34th Street, keep repeating over and over again, I believe, I believe. Yet Hayamen, words for faith and belief, is as natural as a mother nursing her baby. The baby looking up into its mother's eyes and the mother looking into her child's face shows love, commitment, and bonding. Nothing is forced, disciplined, it just happens. Isn't that a beautiful understanding of faith? How did we ever get from this to so much of how faith and belief is expressed in our time? I want to explore just a little bit more about how these words were originally understood. Early translators of the Bible took the Greek word for belief, pistis, into the, and he translated it into the Latin fides, meaning loyalty, and credo, which came from cordo, meaning I give my heart. 
when the Bible was first translated into English, credo was written as the English word belief, which was taken from the Middle English word believe in, which meant to prize, to value, to hold dear. And with all this context, we can better understand the plea by the Father in Mark 9, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. One of my concerns before I became a dad was that I would love my kids more than God. If you're a parent, maybe you share that same anxiety. I can sympathize with the father who here is seemingly saying, I love my son and I love you, Lord, but right now my love is in that order. The Aramaic word for unbelief here correlates closest to little faith more than a lack of faith. It speaks to a quality of faith more than anything that had to do with quantity. The dad was struggling with this issue of priority, and his request was simply that Jesus would understand where he was and meet him there in that limitation, in that moment. This is why he forms his requests as a prayer. Help my unbelief. That word help also points to how faith is a collaboration with Christ. He doesn't say, Lord, I believe, and the next time you see me, I'm going to have even more belief. I think in this way, we can think about our faith with Christ more than our faith in Christ. And what we often miss in this passage is that this was good enough for Jesus. Do you remember how the passage goes on? Jesus ends up healing his son, even at the admission of this unbelief. Here's the takeaway, I think, this morning. We have this beautiful assurance that Jesus hears you, Jesus sees you, Jesus pursues you and desires you, no matter where you fall on the spectrum of faith and belief. And some of you just need to hear that this morning. That identity and that sense of value has nothing to do with your ability to mentally overcome ten impossibilities before breakfast. Jesus isn't asking you to summon up enough mental strength to believe something that everybody knows is false. He simply wants your heart. He wants your honesty and your attention. You get this sense that Jesus was going to do this healing anyway, but he wanted to share that heart-to-heart -heart moment of honesty with the Father. Because for Jesus, it's always about relationship first. To wrap up, I want to leave you with some questions. You could think of these as five questions to foster Christian curiosity. Some years back, the dean of the Harvard School of Education concluded his speech to the graduating class with five questions he said you should always be asking, and I think we should adopt these as well. The first question is so commonplace in our time, it's almost humorous to hear. As a father of two young girls, I get this one quite a lot. And the question goes like this, wait, what? <laughs> it usually comes in the following form. I'm explaining to the girls this list of chores and tasks that they must complete in a, within a certain amount of time, and they're obviously not paying attention to the word I'm saying, and they're just doing something else while I'm talking, until I finish with, and then you get some game time on the tablet or on the Nintendo Switch. Wait, what? Then I have their full attention. Wait, what is a clarifying question. 
The wait part underscores the need to pause often in life, to listen and observe those things that we tend to just rush by. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a responsibility. Or a number of sacred invitations. The what part of the question stresses the importance of gaining proper understanding before, before moving on. As if to say, I want to make sure I'm hearing you correctly so I don't put words in your mouth. Or what is it that you're really trying to say? Asking wait what will keep us curious in this world. A second question could be formed in a statement or a question. I think it comes most of the time maybe in a statement. I wonder, dot, dot, dot. It could be followed by why or if or how. As in, I wonder if we, as the River Church, are doing everything we can to be a welcoming space for our queer community. Or I wonder why we can't make the necessary changes to our law enforcement system so we stop waking up to headlines of police brutality. I wonder. Curious minds never cease to wonder about new possibilities, and they always refuse to accept the way things are. A third question to foster Christian curiosity is, couldn't we at least, as in couldn't we at least agree that scientific data shows our planet is in decay, and unless we make major changes to how we use her resources, we will be faced with a grave situation. Couldn't we at least as an attempt to find a starting place where maybe common ground is hard to find? In our tribal, divisive world that we live in, we can either hole up in our echo chambers or find a way forward by using questions as invitations. Couldn't we at least? A fourth question is, how can I help? This question recognizes the humanity of those around you and it places you in their story and on their terms. The how, how can I help, keeps us from making assumptions about people. It's important to understand how before we advocate and encourage and be present for someone. And the last question we might ask to keep us curious is what truly matters? You might say what truly matters to me? Or you might ask, what truly matters to you? This is a centering question. I have found that when I ask myself this, I'm able to go to let go of so much that isn't essential in life. Sometimes that's beliefs. Sometimes it's just my anxieties. But when I do that, I'm able to be present to the things that really do matter in life. If in our relationships, if we continue to ask ourselves and each other, what truly matters, there's so much that can be overcome that tends to divide us. That's really my prayer. So I want to conclude a sermon on belief by not giving you a bullet point list of what to believe. I want to offer these questions that you would continue to ask them, take them into your day to day, and it would keep you curious and keep you open to those around you. That's my prayer this morning. Let's close in prayer as the worship team comes up. Lord God, we want to, for some of us, confess this sin of certainty. 
that keeps us closed off. This idea that once I've gained certain knowledge or subscribed to a certain belief, that I'm tasked just to hold on to that and in the process forgetting those around us. Would you keep us curious and stir within our hearts by your spirit this heart that is open to those who need us in community, not necessarily need our answers, but need our relationships. Just as your son modeled in this passage in Mark 9, it wasn't really about the belief. It was about the honesty. It was about bringing our heart. It was about pursuing relationship. Let us claim that for ourselves. We thank you for the opportunity to learn more. And even as we go forth from this place and some time, may we live out that truth in your world, being open to those around us. In your son's name we pray this. Amen.